Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, now part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, we're sitting down with writers across the genre spectrum, so subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more information about our festival. So Kara, you've written some really beautiful stories that live in a surreal or magical world. What types of stories or lore inspire you or keep drawing you back? You know, when I think about lore, one of the first things I remember from when I was a kid is being in elementary school and being assigned to do a research report on Greek mythology. It was kind of that 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 assignment from my teacher that was the here's how we're going to prepare you to do the kind of big research projects you know middle schoolers are going to have to do right and so we were studying um, ancient Greece at the time and so the the thing that I ended up studying was was Greek mythology and I was just totally enamored with this this brand new set of 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 mythology that I'd never that I'd never been familiar with it was like discovering like a whole new trope of fairy tales yeah absolutely and. What I love about mythology is how much people have used it and changed it and made it their own. You know, I've read a bunch of different series that have their own take on certain, whether it's gods or myths, you know, and because of one of these, I have a very clear picture of who I think Apollo is because in this one thing I read, he, you know, he was this kind of character. And so then when I find Apollo in other stories, I, it's like, I have this preconceived notion, even though that's not at all, you know, that was one writer's interpretation. And so I love seeing these stories changed or taken from a different perspective. So we had Madeline Miller at the festival and, and she wrote from Cersei's perspective. And, you know, that, that was just really wonderful because we don't know that much about Cersei. You know, she turns some men into pigs and you see her alongside Odysseus, but you don't really get to know Cersei. And so that was a really nice change. And I, I remember too, having those, like, just like you said, those very same, like strong opinions about who all of the gods were. I remember just thinking about what a jerk Zeus was all of the time and, um, and how much I loved the, so many of the, of the female goddesses. It was just, it was a really, I, I feel like it, it makes sense that, that those myths have become the origin of so many other stories over, over the centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of the the strong perspective, you know, I mentioned Apollo specifically. And so it was interesting when we were reading um, Papacha Bujak's The Trojan War Museum and other stories and the, and the title story there, The Trojan War Museum, it's Apollo who's creating this museum for the Trojan War. And so I actually had to like really step back and say, you know, no, Apollo is different than maybe how I'm approaching this. And so I want to follow Apollo and see what he's doing and see how he's changing. And and that's the Iliad retold, but in just a totally fabulous, um, interesting time jumping. I mean, we go from the Trojan War to the future at some point. So um, I'm really, really looking forward to talking with Papacha today about how she approaches this and how she uses mythology and history. Yes. And I love, I, I really love uh, the way that mythology and history blend in so many of her stories. I'm really excited uh, to talk with her about that. Aisha Papacha Bujak is the author of the Trojan War Museum and Other Stories, which was awarded the 2019 Spotlight Award by the Story Prize. Her writing has been published in a variety of journals, including One Story, Bomb, The Iowa Review, Guernica, and Witness. Welcome, Papacha. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So in your in your new collection, the Trojan War Museum, many of the stories focus on or use elements of 
uh, mythology, the magical, or the folkloric. What's the myth or piece of lore that continues to draw you back again and again? Oh, that's interesting. Do I have, I don't know that I have one in particular. I, when I was a kid, so I grew up outside Philadelphia um, in the suburbs, and we used to go to the Philadelphia Art Museum, where there is, I think it's a Rubens painting that's of Prometheus, like bound to the rock and the Raven, is it? I don't remember the myth precisely, which is actually useful when you're rewriting myths. I think it's good to have only the core. Um, but, you know, he's getting his liver pecked out every day um, for having stolen fire. And especially as a young person, like the painting, he's very like fleshy and muscular. And it's a really like vibrant painting that feels a little more grown up than I, you know, it's fine for a kid to see, but it felt very grown up to see. And I feel like that was a sort of starting point for me. And what's interesting is I've never actually written about that myth. And I think I really want to. So it hasn't been one I've returned to, but I feel like it's one I'm holding in reserve. I think in terms of form, I probably keep coming back to Scheherazade and the Arabian Nights, which actually I worry about because that's so many people do that. And it's, it's such a familiar um, storyline. So what I have in my head now is, well, okay, if I'm going to keep using Scheherazade, what am I going to do with that? That's a little different. So that's, you know, something I think about for future and then I do use fairy tales a lot. And I, I feel like it's more than one particular story. It's just the component parts that I'm going to keep returning to in terms of um, what fairy tales do. I'm not really a poet, but I have in my head that I really want to write a poem um, that's a form poem that uses repetition of like Little Red Riding Hood's cloak and things like that. Like, I really want to write some fairy tale form poems. So, um, my novel is going poorly enough that I might actually try that next. <laughs> I, I love hearing that um, that it was a painting that is is one of the first things that you remember. Um, especially thinking about the way a story like an Ottoman's arabesque is completely is composed so much around around visual art. Uh, that's really interesting. You know, it's funny. So the cover of my book, I'm so grateful to the cover designer because I was utterly unaware with my of my own obsession with museums. The, the title of the book, the stories in the book, my lifelong habit of going to museums did not clue me into my own obsession with museums until he made that cover. And I thought, oh, a story collection is like a museum. So it's that's been one fun part of the process is, see, you know, other people coming in and showing me things that I had no idea I was doing. As far as it being a museum as well, we'd love to to ask you a little bit about your your forms, the different forms that you use in this museum. You know, one of the things that that I that I notice in a lot of these stories is you do use these kind of like very different structural ap approaches to a lot of stories. Like you mentioned, you have like a lot of the repetition of fairy tales and some of them. You have uh, some that are like a cautionary tale where you're going backward in time as opposed to forward. Is, is structure something you like to play around with a lot? Yeah, I mean, I think I find it useful. Um, and th this maybe happens a lot because I teach and so I'm talking about these things a lot, but I, I kind of give myself homework. Um, otherwise, I mean, I love writing, but it can, it can feel like a sort of endless homework without any sort of structure of its own. And so from story to story, I found it useful to 
say, I'm going to try something I haven't done before. So, you know, I'd read novels with reverse chronology and I thought, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to try it. Or in terms of Ottoman's Arabesque, the story with the paintings in it, that was sort of, that structure was born of a problem with (laughs) finding a plot where, you know, I was working with a real life figure, Khalil Bey, who's um, the art collector, and I could not find out very much about him. And so I had thought I would, I kept trying to write character-centered stories and I kept <laughs> coming up against whatever my own problems with that or, or with problems with research. And so I couldn't find out enough about him and I didn't feel comfortable inventing that much about him. So I ended up writing about the paintings much more than him. And so the structure was born of just trying to find a way to tell the actual story. Um, but, but I find it useful to have a, a, a structure that I'm attempting that gets me through the story and then hopefully gives the reader um, a sense of closure at the end because the story has its architecture that feels complete. Do you settle on the structure before you start or in the case of writing more about the paintings, it just kind of happened naturally as you were writing? It's, it can happen either way. I, I, I like to know, like I'm a, just a really organized person. <laughs> I'm comforted by structure. So I do prefer to know before I start. Um, but I, I was often doing a lot of notebook writing, like with the Trojan War Museum, I honestly built the story more out of my notes. And so it was, it was, I had this initial idea for that story that I wanted to use the fact that there are all these layers to Troy, you know, as the archaeologists dug out Troy, they found all these layers of the city. So I thought I would use that somehow, like it would be a layered story in that way and then once I came up with the idea of the museum I thought okay well then it'll be just different versions of the museum and it started out as it would be a kind of quote-unquote normal museum in one location that just changed over time but that's the the writing just didn't go that way so I think it's a combination of factors there's usually some originating idea that I want to try And then as I attempt it, it has to be modified because whatever I initially thought I was going to do wasn't really working. And so I would, or or even just the voice of the story would lead a different way um, in the actual creation of it. So I, I don't, I don't think I stay terribly set on a structure once I've, you know, it, it gets me started and if it needs to evolve, it evolves, but I definitely prefer to know ahead of time. I definitely prefer to have some kind of end goal I guess that actually has also had has me thinking about another question we wanted to ask about using history in your in your work um do do you like having just using history as a starting point in, in a similar way to like working from a structure because so often you have uh you have stories that are either in real historical settings or or, or like you mentioned dealing with with historical figures and I wondered you know n- now I'm sort of wondering about history in terms of structure, but also just what is it that appeals to you about exploring history through fiction rather than nonfiction or, or another avenue? Yeah. No, I, I definitely like that idea of history as structure. I had never thought of it that way, but I do think that's, that's what's happening, that it is another form of structure for me. I'd be interested to do a nonfiction reported book someday, but in this instance, it really did not like, appeal to me to stay limited to reality. So I, 
I think maybe because I'm half Turkish and I grew up in the U.S. and I don't speak Turkish. So there's a lot of limitations to what I know about Turkey. And I have a lot of doubts about I have all these like, oh, am I really Turkish kind of doubts um, that made me way more comfortable writing a fabulous version of history. Um, and, and also that's just maybe more my style as a fiction writer. But I did a lot of research. I, you know, one of the discoveries for me in writing this book was how much I enjoyed doing the research and how that made writing way more fun for me. And it partly is like there's a comfort in not having to invent everything myself that I could go to other stories and, and real life facts and histories and use those as building blocks for my own stories. But also, you know, I was reading and teaching nonfiction more when I, at the point that I started writing these stories, nonfiction was coming into my life more through various venues. And I think that just filtered in. And so that I started to look at, oh, well, how can I use the forms of essays or the things that essays do in my own style? I, do, I tend to like to blend things and just pull from every resource that I have. And so nonfiction became one of those tools for me. And you're talking about writing historically accurate, at least in a lot of ways, fiction, that's also fabulous. But one of the things that hits so real is a lot of the violence in the works. Um, and so in the Trojan War Museum, you have this line, think museums turn war to poetry, so to poets, so to war. And that's really interesting because the violence in there is, it's brutal, but it's also poetic. And then um, I know you've written that you wanted to write maybe a little bit more bluntly about violence in say um, your, sh your short story, The Dead. Can you talk a little bit about like yeah, straddling that line, that of talking about historical about violence it, and how you write it? A lot it? of the book is not really historically accurate. And I didn't feel at all bound by worrying about if this, you know, what I was doing with the facts, but with, um, you know, writing something but I guess both with the Trojan War Museum story and the dead story, I was thinking a lot about how I was writing experiences that I have in no way had. I have never been a soldier at war and I certainly have you know, not ex experienced the losses of the Armenian genocide or any of the various horrible <laughs> holocausts and so on that the world has been through. And so I d had a different awareness in, in writing those things and it did change my language and I did do a lot more reading and listening to oral narratives or other people's stories or documentaries or books. I, there's a nonfiction book, Voices from Chernobyl, Voices of Chernobyl, um, Svetlana Alexievich, that I really love that book. And it's oral narratives of uh, people who experienced Chernobyl from one side or another. And that was a big influence for me in, in writing The Dead, where I wanted to try to give a voice to um, you know, my version of someone who'd been through it. I still worry because I, I was basing what I wrote on other people's experiences and yet taking their name off of those experiences in a way. And I kind of wish I had kept a more detailed bibliography and had like a list of, you all should read these books also. Um, and maybe I'll put that on my website now that I think about that. Because I, do, I feel like there is a version in which or there is a way to look at this that I am taking other people's stories and putting it into my story and I want to give them credit so I worry about that and you know in terms of language I don't think there is any answer because it is my style to try to write something in a way that's kind of pretty and yet that you know war and genocide should not be written in a way that's pretty of course and and so I don't 
think I have a solution. I, you know, I just, and even the sort of bluntness of the descriptions of um, the Turks' violence against Armenians, it's, I think it's so early startling for me that in a way it does read as unreal and that's uncomfortable, you know, that, that um, a reader might come away from that thinking of it like a horror movie as opposed to a reality. Yeah, well, I mean, even going back to our original question about, you know, mythology and lore, I mean, that is, it's just so brutal from start to finish, but yet we encounter it through poetry. Mm-hmm. And so that's an interesting juxtaposition to think about and then, you know, to maybe use in your own work or not use if you try to be more blunt with it. And, and even I think readers, we as readers, we come to things with our lifelong history of reading. And so, you know, to write the story of the Trojan War Museum, I read the Iliad over and over. And the Iliad is often graphic and upsetting and, and even just thematically is really emphasizing the horror of war. And yet in the abstract, when we think about the Iliad, I think we think of it as a hero's tale, you know, and it's in the abstract become something that seems to celebrate the glory when in fact it's criticizing the glory. And, you know, if that's going to happen to the Iliad, then what am I up against? (laughs) (laughs) You know, we just come at things as we're trained to read a certain way or think about things a certain way. And it can be hard to get the reader to to shift gears on, on that kind of thing. And maybe sometimes using prettier language as a way to get into a topic that is just, because as you said, you know, some of those descriptions in the dead, it seems fake or surreal, but those were real things that happened. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and I also think like if you, if someone writes a, a whole story, that's nothing but graphic depictions of horror, then I mean, nobody is going to really stick with that story as a reader or you know at some point you do you know our bodies just shut it down and and stop absorbing things so I think it is a constant dilemma you know that's why it's such a long-term question of how to write about horrors and and sort of the worst of human behavior absolutely I I also wanted to ask you a question about revision one of the things that had me thinking about this is one of the stories uh, we mentioned earlier in Ottoman's Arabesque. I I had read it um, when it had come out in a journal a while back, and then looking at the the version that's in the book, there there were a number of things that were changed. And I was so curious about how you, as a writer, know when a story is done, or do you, do you ever feel like it's really done? Yeah, that's that's um, the one story that changed the most, actually, and. At this point, I honest, so in the version that was in Kenyan Review, there were these little vignettes that were, I wrote what I considered to be flash fictions that paralleled each painting. And I, at this point, honestly, it wasn't that long ago, so this is embarrassing. I'm not sure if I took those out before sending the book to my agent or if she suggested taking them out or if my editor suggested taking them out. I kind of think it might have been my editor who suggested taking them out, um, and it was it was by far the biggest change I made to any story. Most of the stories actually just were line edits, and I was comfortable taking them out because I was never that sure that they worked fully as little flash fictions or that they were necessarily adding that much to to the piece. 
but they do feel a little like a lost limb. Like I appreciate that you know they were there <laughs> because I, you know, they, it feels a little weird to me that they're not not in the book. Um, but mostly, like I feel like a story. I always feel like a story could have been better. I always feel like, oh, there is that gap between what I had hoped for or, you know, what I see, like my favorite stories seem that much little bit better than what I managed to do. But I do feel with every one of these stories, I took it as far as I was capable of taking it. And I either would need to just start a new story or it had to, like, I had to be done with it. Like it reached a point where I could feel like, oh, I think there is something missing here but I could spend the rest of my life trying to do it and I don't think I could do it. <laughs> so it's done in that way. Um, and I guess I don't mind that so much. Like, I'm just not a perfectionist. I'm not someone who's gonna obsess over the fact that there, these aren't, that there are flaws in the stories. And, and I think that that comes from reading a lot whereas so many of my favorite books, there is like one little element where I'm like, I didn't love that part. And, and it's fine, it's still my favorite book, you know? <laughs> so I think I kind of, I'm pretty quick to forgive myself, which for better or for worse, <laughs> keeps me sane, I think. But I like revision. I mean, I, I do tend to be someone who revises a lot as I go. And I do sort of feel like I need to have the voice of the story before I can even draft it very much. So that helps or that maybe ensures that I need to revise as I go because I, I'm always trying to keep it in voice. But I I find it comforting to work with something that's on the page. It's the blank page is far harder for me. And um, so revision is part that I enjoy. I did, I was very lucky in that I had an agent and an editor who were both very conscientious about, you know, can like trying or even asking me like what I wanted to do with the story. Cause some of the stories are unusual in form and so on. And they were never applying blanket rules and saying you should do this or let's make this more marketable or any of that. It was really, like, okay, I see what you're trying to do here, but I think maybe the tone is off in this moment or maybe you're being, my editor was really good at picking up moments where I was being a little too flip and it was undercutting the emotion of the story. So I was, I was really grateful to have her eye as the like last eye that went through the, all the pieces. And that's, an, and that's another really interesting part of revision. Like when you say you, you weren't sure whether it was you or your agent or your editor who, who had that first suggestion. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just interesting to think about like when, once you get to that point of, okay, I've taken this as far as I can. Um, and then what, what might somebody else see? So it sounds like you had a pretty good experience in terms of yeah, being I able think, to, to do that. Yeah, I think I would if I was bitter about doing it, I would remember who told me, right? <laughs> it's like, but I really trusted them to be trying to highlight my stories as opposed to change them. I really often don't remember where a suggestion came from because by the end I was always comfortable with it so that it felt like my decision, even if it wasn't my idea, which I just really appreciated. And I, th I think some of the best advice that you could uh, give a writer, whether in writing and revision, you said is you forgive yourself. And that's, that's a, you know, that's a very difficult thing to do as a writer. Yeah. I'm not sure you can learn it. Like I see my st students struggle with this all the time where they just, um, they, it generates an inaction. I think when they, they get stuck on, it's not good enough. I can't do it. Whereas I'm like, it's okay if you can't do it. <laughs> Just move on to the next thing.
Yeah, absolutely. So the last question that we've got for you today is kind of looking at where you're writing now. So you, you've talked in, in the past about um, how your some travels that you've gone on have been inspirations for stories. And clearly you've talked a lot about traveling through research and, and you know, so that's historical travel um, location. But now that we're all stuck at home, yeah. what's happening with your, your process? Are you writing to escape? Are you not writing much at all? I mean, it's a, so, you know, in the middle of the semester, it's always a bit hard for me to write a lot. Like I definitely write more during summer because I don't teach during summer. But I am lucky in that a lot of my, even though I love to go to museums and go to other places, I can access the same feeling of a museum or travel via books more than anything. Also, the internet is helpful. Um, but my current thing, I'm, I am working on a novel and I will say very, very little about it because it will probably all change tomorrow. But like, set in a retirement home where the main characters are archaeologists and that so I'm actually thinking a lot about the deep past and um that's pretty easy to do from home actually because because I really can do the research from home and I am following all these archaeologists on Twitter which is really fun like I, I don't know I might have to just start over as an archaeologist and abandon writing about archaeologists. <laughs> I know it's probably very tedious a lot of the time, but it looks fun from home. All right, I have I have one more question. What is your favorite museum? Do you have a favorite museum? Uh, that's a good question. Do I have a favorite museum? I mean, Philadelphia Art Museum is like my home museum and it's huge and does so much. I love it. But the Brandywine River Museum, which is um, the Wyeth Family Museum. So it's N.C. Wyeth, Andrew Wyeth, and Jamie Wyeth. And N.C. Wyeth is most famous as an illustrator. He illustrated Treasure Island and all these books from early 20th century. That's my, probably is my favorite. So Brandywine River Museum's outside Philadelphia. It's along the Brandywine River. It's just really focused on this one family. So it's small and manageable, but it has both the like really different styles. Jamie Wyeth, the, the youngest of the painters, is more fun, like playful, contemporary. Andrew Wyeth has his, you know, like, you know, Christina's world where she's like looking, she's on the field, looking into the distance, yearning. It has that style. And then the children's illustrations of N.C. Wyeth, I just love. So seeing those as a kid, the paintings of those illustrations, I think had a big impact on me too. So that's probably my favorite. Well, those are such good questions. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for talking with us. This was a lot of fun. Oh, my pleasure. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.